be with you here this morning. Uh, if you're new, I am Pastor Joe. I'm the preaching pastor here. Uh, but if you'd ask me what I wanted to be when I was a little boy, you know, when you when you grow up, and we like to ask little kids this question, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? And what I wanted to be when I grew up uh, back then was a cowboy. Anybody can relate to that, right? Uh, I wanted to be a cowboy. And so, you know, Dad would watch Gunsmoke on TV, you know, with James Arness as Marshall Matt Dillon, right? And I would watch The Lone Ranger down in the, my parents' basement. It was a 1970s basement, so it had to have green carpet, right? And, um, and it had that green shag carpet. And I had, you know, our little color TV that had four channels on it and the rabbit ears. And I would tune in to watch The Lone Ranger, on TV, and I had a red cowboy hat that I think I wore everywhere, including the shower and the church and the swimming pool, and um, and cowboy boots, and I had one of these little spring horses. Have you seen this? These are amazing. I, apparently, you can still buy them, but they do not come in adult sizes. And uh, I had this hollow plastic horse, and it had a, a spring at each corner of the horse on this iron frame, and I would sit, and I would ride that thing to death until the paint wore off of it. I, I rode that thing while watching the Lone Ranger. But my favorite possession of, of, of all of the things that I owned was for my sixth birthday. My dad had bought me a leather holster for my cap pistol, right? Now, this was the best I could find. Bass Pro comes through on all kinds of things. This is, but I had a good one back then, right? And it looked real. It didn't have the red caps at the end. We were a less litigious society then. Um, and um, uh, mine looked real, and they put real black powder in the caps, and it sounded like a gun went off when you shot it, right? And there were imaginary outlaws all over my neighborhood, and so I would go gunslinging around Finley Avenue, you know, and spin that thing and stick it back in the holster. I mean, I was amazing, right? And um, and I was the first person to bring peace to Finley Avenue. It was incredible. Uh, I kept it strapped to my hip uh, all, every place I went. I think it probably made it to church more than once, although I don't know if they had to assign and said you had to check your guns at the door, but... If I had, I'd have had to turn them in to the pastor. But in any case, I think part of the appeal of, of Westerns and of being a cowboy, like I imagined back then, was the way that conflict between good and evil was just simple. It was always neatly resolved. Uh, you know, a good man simply walked into the saloon or down the street like Gary Cooper in High Noon. And he unholstered his peacemaker made by Sam Colt. And the bad guys either left town for good or they wound up in Boot Hill, right? And conflict always got solved. And justice always came. I've, as I grew up, I found out that the line between good and evil, good men and evil men, is a lot fuzzier than what I thought when I was a plastic pony cowboy. And I found out also that the need for peace was a lot bigger and a lot harder to achieve than what I thought. I know that uh, left to ourselves as sinners, conflict over differences between people quickly turns into anger that quickly hardens into bitterness and hatred and faction forming 
and people quickly start recruiting supporters. And it isn't long before conflict becomes unresolvable and we start idly thinking about how to resolve the problem with whatever version of the descendants of a cult peacemaker that we have available. Amen? So even though this isn't the Old West, and this isn't the Lone Ranger, and in fact, I don't even think that's on TV anymore. But what hasn't changed at all is our need for someone who is good and powerful to step into our lives and to bring peace between us and God and between us and one another. Amen? We need someone good from outside of town to come in to our world and make peace. And praise God, Jesus has done exactly that. I don't want to spend much time on the cult peacemaker this morning, but I do want to spend a lot of time with you thinking about Jesus, our peacemaker. Because that's what Scripture calls him, our peacemaker. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it, if you would, to your New Testament, uh, to the book of Ephesians. Uh, it's a good way back in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, incidentally, this morning, like I say, there's a stack of them by the door, both kids' versions and adult versions. Uh, if you're an adult and you just want a, one with pictures in it, you can feel free to grab one. Um, but it's the same text, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. And I want to read it to you. And since we honor God's Word here at Chili Bible, I want to honor God's Word by standing as I read. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's pray. Father, you know far better than I how broken our world is. Our world is full of sinners who, as Romans says, invent new ways of doing evil. And Father, uh, we also know that this world and its effects of sin are not limited merely to sin, but our sins have had an effect on the world. The disease now runs rampant, as we've seen. That divisions between people according to race and sex and nationality and color and language and economic status, that these things are all part of our world and they are all results of sin. Father, we pray that 
this morning as we think about how Jesus came to make peace between us and each other and between us and you. Father, help us to, uh, as a result of the gospel, establish peace in our own lives. Not only with you, but also with those that you put us into relationship and into proximity with. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, if you look at verses 11 and 12, uh, you'll see, first of all, that they follow immediately after verse 10. <laughs> okay. Now, I know that's an obvious observation, right? I'm not going to get my Captain Obvious cape on this morning, but um, but it's immediately after verse 10. And why is that important? Because verses 8 and 9 tell us what the gospel is, that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you receive salvation. And that the only person who gets to boast in that giving of salvation is not you, but Jesus. Right? That Jesus has bought us salvation. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't merit it. We can't work for it. We can't do enough good things to achieve it. It's simply given to us as a gift. But that out of that uh, results a transformed life that produces good works. Amen? That's verse 10. And then, and then the very first thing that he starts talking about as part of good works is making peace. And it's evidently a big one because it occupies the rest of chapter 2, all of chapter 3, and the first half of chapter 4. And if you understand the, the rest of Ephesians rightly, you'll understand that everything that follows verse 10 is explaining the outworking of what those good works are that result in the gospel. That the gospel being rightly believed, rightly understood, rightly embraced results in a transformed life in every relationship that you have. Not only in your relationship with God, but in your relationship with other people, in your job, in your marriage, in your relationship between parents and kids, in your uh, relationships with everyone you interact with. The gospel results in a transformed life. And in verse 11 and 12, though, what you see is a snapshot of our situation as Gentiles before Jesus came. Now, there was an irreconcilable alienation between Jews and Gentiles prior to the coming of Jesus. Pious Jews regarded Gentiles, see if this sounds a little harsh, as having been created by God as fuel for the fires of hell. They forbid them, uh, if you were a Jewish midwife, you were forbidden by a Jewish law from uh, helping a pregnant Gentile woman give birth because if you did, you were bringing another heathen into the world. And that was a bad thing. They referred to, Jews referred to Gentiles in the ancient world as dogs. And they did not mean Fifi and Rover and Sam and Buddy and whoever, right? What they meant was the kind of street dogs that you see running all over most of the world cities today. If you go uh, outside of Europe, outside of the U.S. and Canada and, and you know other first world type nations, and you go into one of the world's major cities, you're going to see just big roving packs of wild dogs. And they're all about yay high, and they have pointy ears and curly hair, 
I mean, curly tails, and um, and all that they do is is eat whatever garbage they can find, and breed, and um, you know, relieve themselves in every conceivable location. And that's what a Jew thought of a Gentile as being, as being akin to one of those street animals. And the feeling was mutual. Gentiles referred to Jews as homicidal barbarians. And they thought the act of circumcision was the most barbaric, um, you know, backwards thing you can imagine. And they took every opportunity in every empire from Greece, Rome, the empires in the Middle East. Uh, They had no second thoughts whatsoever about conquering and dominating such barbaric and backward people. And what really made these divisions insurmountable was something spiritual. And that's what verse 11 and 12 explains. Remember at that time, you Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember at that time, you were separated from Christ. You see, Circumcision was not just a a rite that was performed on the bodies of Jewish men. It was a symbol of the fact that you belonged to God, that your whole life was dedicated to God. And it was given first to Abraham, and then God said, what we're going to do is we're going to put a mark on the reproductive organ of every man so that he knows that every person descended through that organ is someone who belongs to God and is part of the lineage that is going to bring forth blessing to the world. Now that got corrupted into a a matter of pride among Jews, but nevertheless, it was the marker that they were God's people. And if you wanted to become part of the people of God, that was the dividing line between those who followed the law of God and those who didn't. It was a much bigger commitment than getting baptized at church. Amen? You had to undergo surgery. And um, and it was not in a modern day surgical center. You take a flint knife and do this. And, um, and you crossed over. You became a Jew. And you had to become a Jew to become part of God's people. And anyone who was not circumcised was just regarded as part of the rabble of the people who were going to hell. And the Jews looked at them with disdain. And in addition to that, the situation of separation from God was not just uh, symbolized by that physical act, it was a reality that Jews were the people who were connected to God. And Gentiles were not. They worshiped and did every kind of thing imaginable. And so verse 12 specifies five different ways that they were alienated from God and his people before Christ came. We, in other words, we, all of us descendants of the the Gauls and the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the barbarian hordes from Europe, all of us that are here this morning, we, were alienated from God. We were, first of all, verse 12 says, Christless. Because the Messiah was promised to the Jew. 
And so if you were not a Jew, you were not part of the Messianic people and you had neither thought nor hope of any kind of Savior. Second, you were alienated from Israel. We've talked a lot about that, but Israel was God's chosen people. You had to join them to be saved. Uh, And so anybody who was not part of them, by definition, was alienated from them. They were not God's people. Third, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. God gave covenants by which He promised that a Messiah would come. And we were strangers. We were foreigners to those. We were those who were standing outside of of being part of those. God's covenants did not belong to us. We were not fellow citizens and members of God's house governed by His promises and claiming a share of them as His children. We were outsiders. And because of that, we were also hopeless and godless. Do you see that? Verse 12. Without hope and without God in the world. And those last two go together. If you have no real relationship with the living God, the only one that exists, then you can worship an an entire panoply of of things, beings and creatures and, and people and stuff that you can bow down and worship. But what you find out in all of those things is that none of them are real and lasting and give any lasting hope. And so ultimately you are left without a real God and without hope in the world. And so to summarize, before Jesus came, we were as badly lost as we could be. Cut off from any hope of relationship with God or with his people. Look at verse 13 which reverses the situation. We go 180 degree flip from where we were to what we have become in Christ. We go from total alienation, verses 11 and 12, to total reconciliation, verses 13 to 16. Verse 13 is glorious indeed. Through the blood of Christ, you who were far off. Let me rephrase that. Us who were far off have been brought near. Us who were far off have been brought near. We who were far off from God are not far off anymore. When Jesus died, His death literally opened the way to God that anyone may come. You remember this happened at at Jesus' crucifixions? The Gospel tells us this, that at the moment Jesus died, that the curtain in the temple that divided the holy place Uh, where the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the golden lampstand were from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant used to sit, that, that the priest, the high priest, could only go into once a year on the Day of Atonement. That Jesus' atonement having been made, what God did was ripped the curtain in half from top to bottom, symbolizing that anyone may now enter into the relationship with God, into fellowship with God, in the presence of God. Anyone may come. And how did Jesus do that? Verse 14 tells us more. 
says, He Himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now let me go backwards into that verse, okay? Uh, Let's start with what the dividing wall of hostility was. In the temple, there were three courtyards that surrounded the temple building itself. The temple building had the holy place and the most holy place at the back of it. And then outside of it was a courtyard and it contained the uh, the wash basin for the priest to clean up after making sacrifice. And then in front of that, the altar where, they, where sacrifice was made. And in that area was called the court of Israel. And if you were a man who had had his bar mitzvah and you were part of the, the Jewish men, you could go there and you could represent your family as you went in to worship God. And then outside of that was a a larger area called the Court of Women, where if you were an Israelite man or an Israelite child, you could worship God there. And then outside of that was a big courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles, Court of the Goyim, the nations. Court where if you were a Gentile, and you were interested in the worship of the living God, but you had not been circumcised, you could go there and worship. And it was interesting, in that in that place there was a wall that separated, it had doors, but it separated the, um, the court of the women, the Israelite women, from court of the nations, and on that wall were inscriptions, multiples of them. We have actually dug up archaeologically a couple of them, And uh, they were called Thanatos inscriptions. I know some of y'all like Marvel movies, and you know that character Thanos, right? He gets his his name from Greek because Thanatos is the word for death. And it was called a Thanatos inscription because it read in in both Greek and Latin uh, words to this effect. If you are a Gentile and you cross this barrier, you will have yourself to blame for being put to death being on the other side of it. This is why Paul calls that the dividing wall of hostility. Amen? Because it it could set a very hard life and death boundary between those who are the people of God and those who are not. And if you are not, then may God have mercy on your soul if you cross this wall. It was a big deal. What does the Scripture say? That Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility in His own body. He broke it down. And made us both one. Must both who? Jews and Gentiles. Made it possible for anyone to come into into relationship with God and come to worship God and come to have full membership in the people of God. Without circumcision? Yes, without circumcision. If you don't understand how that works, come Thursday night to our study through Galatians and we'll we'll make it clear to you how that all works. Um... And verse 15, though, clarifies a little more, even further, how this incredible feat that Jesus performed was accomplished. Look with me. You see what Jesus did? There there are three amazing things that Jesus did that tore down this dividing wall of hostility. First, He abolished the law in commandments expressed in ordinances. How does that work? 
Well, the law required that you be perfectly and completely obedient, that you be holy as I am holy. No human being was ever able to do that. And so they needed sacrifices, amen, uh, to atone for the fact that they were sinners. Now, so what did Jesus do? Jesus came as the Son of God, and he lived a perfectly holy, completely righteous life, keeping all of the moral commandments of the law, even the one that says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus bore God's curse for us. He fulfilled the moral requirements of the law. And he also fulfilled the requirements of the ceremonial law because Jesus became our priest. As Hebrews says, in the order of Melchizedek, he became a priest offering a perfect sacrifice of himself uh, uh, as the perfect substitute for all sin, for all people, for all time. And so in that way, he makes the atoning sacrifice. He fulfills the sacrifices of the day of atonement in a way that they themselves never did. And he also carried away our sin and shame as the scapegoat that the law describes dying outside the city of Jerusalem. He dies outside the camp. Just like the old scapegoat that was on the day of atonement taken outside to die, carrying the guilt of the people. Jesus fulfilled every part of the requirements of God's law. And in so doing, abolished it as a means for being in relationship with God. And established, as Jesus says in the offering of communion, a new covenant in his blood by which all men, all women, all children, all people from all nations and all places and all times could come into relationship with God. He abolished the law because it was no longer needed. Number two, he created one new man. Do you see that? And he might make one new man. When a person puts their faith into Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, what happens is, is that they are, are transferred by the Holy Spirit into membership in God's family. They become a member. We talk about the body of Christ, right? Because Ephesians talks about that, that he has made us part of one body, the body of Christ. And so all of the distinctions that formerly may have been important to you in your life are uh, relativized in, re in relationship to the one distinction that matters, that you are part of the body of Christ. He's made different people one in his body. So you don't all have to become Jews. Aren't you glad? Some of you men are especially glad that you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. Because you've experienced not circumcision of the body, but circumcision of the heart, which has brought you into the body of Christ. That by faith in Jesus, you have been transformed. And to and that together we form one new people of God, one new man, one new race, one new humanity. And finally, and the third thing, Jesus made peace. Do you see that there at the end? So making peace. The end result of all of these things, all these things that Jesus does is peace between different kinds of people in the body of Christ as they're all brought into unity, into oneness. And so uh, it says that he ends the hostility. 
Hostility ends when we find our, our chief life-defining identity, not in our nationality, not in our language, not in our race, not in our people group, but in the fact that we belong to Jesus. We define our life that way. I was talking with my daughter, Ashley. She's serving as a camp counselor up at Timberley Christian Camp uh, in Wisconsin this summer. I was talking to her yesterday, and she was talking about some of these girls that, are, that were her, counsel, her counselees or campers um, this last week. And so, several of them, I was so brokenhearted. They introduce themselves, they give their name, and then the next thing that they give is how they identify in terms of their sexual uh, proclivities. And I wanted to tell these girls there's so much more to life. Jesus is giving you so much more to life than how you happen to be attracted to people. And some of the ways that you're attracted to people are broken and sinful. And Jesus came to give you life that is abundant. And to give you a new identity of Christian. And to bring you into a new body, the body of Jesus Christ. You can't get all that accomplished necessarily in one week at camp. But you can get started in sharing the gospel with somebody. And that's why she's there. But here's the reality. Jesus came to reconcile us to one another and to give us a new life-defining identity as, as Christians. As Christians. Christians first, last, and most. And look at, in case we missed it, verse 16. It makes it clear that Jesus came not only to make peace between Jews and Gentiles, but between us and God himself. This is the big enchilada right here, right? This is it. We are all born sinners, amen? If you don't believe me, look back earlier in chapter 2 of this book where it talks about how wretched and under God's wrath we were. And God saved us. And now we have peace with God. We have all received, if you put your trust in Jesus, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And now we have peace with God. And that peace with God should result in peace with each other. Amen? Now, if all of these things are true, and they are, this is the Word of God, so all these things are true, then this is meant to, Ephesians 2.10, work itself out in good works that God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Amen? So, this is the part where we get into the nub of this. Um, if you've got your bulletin, on the back of it is an outline of this message, the major points. And at the bottom, there's, a, there's three sentences of an application point. It says this, The gospel is a message of reconciliation. Amen? It's about reconciliation between us and God first, and then us and other people second. So when it is, when it is believed, it results in reconciliation with God and with others. So now here's the, here's the hairy part. Because most of us like our theology, but we 
We struggle on this part. Do my relationships reflect the gospel? It's a harder question to answer than you would think. It is. It's harder to answer that question than you would think. We often find it easier, even if we're followers of Jesus, to break peace than to make peace. Amen? But, if we're followers of Jesus in a real way, in a lasting way, we're called to do the opposite of that. We're called to make peace, not break peace. Getting this right is a big part of the Christian life. It is an enormous chunk of this book. And so we want to become good at this. We want to grow up into maturity and do this. Because this is one of the primary things that reflects the fact that we are God's people. So we want to get good at this. Um, let me give you some points of application. There are four of these. Number one, be reconciled to God. We got to start there. We got to start there. If you do not know God, then none of this is going to make any sense or be remotely possible in your life. And so you got to start there. If you are not yet in a place where you are at peace with God, this is the way that God made for that to happen. He said, believe in Jesus Christ. Let me clarify what that means. That you transfer your trust from whatever you have been building your life on to Jesus Christ. Believe that He died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life. And at the moment you do that, you receive the new life He promised. The Holy Spirit enters into your heart and you're able to, to, to experience that transformation then that we're talking about. But if you're not reconciled to God first, reconciliation with each other is not going to be possible. So you've got to start there. If you want to know more about that, I would love to meet with you afterwards. I will take as long as you need. I will stay here overnight if necessary. I'm serious. I'm not kidding. For you to come to an understanding of what it means to follow Jesus and to know Him in a personal way. I absolutely do it. It's too important. This is the most important thing in all of life, is being reconciled to God. But out of that, if you are reconciled rightly to God through faith in Christ, then there are some things that ought to result from that. And that ought to remember, it ought to, first of all, remember, this is number two, remember the gospel is about reconciling us to God and bringing reconciliation between us and one another. And that fact should show up in all of our relationships if we belong to God. Uh, the Apostle John says it this way in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. God always ties loving Him and loving people together. Now, 
One doesn't replace the other, but they're always tied together. If you really love God, then you love other people. And if you don't love other people, don't say you love God. Because His love always translates into loving other people. Number three, when it comes to reconciliation among people, remember what Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 23. He said this, if you are offering your gift at the altar, in other words, if you come to, come to God to worship and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, God thinks this is so important that it is a hindrance to worship if you've got unresolved conflict and need to go solve that one. Uh, so practically speaking, how do you do that? Okay, here, let me give you some steps. If you are the person who is just aware that there's an issue and you don't know what the issue is, but you know somebody's upset with you, go to them. If you're the one who is upset, then go to them. Don't wait six months. Don't wait till you've got a good head of steam up. Don't wait until you've talked to 15 people other than them. Go. Go immediately. Uh, ask if you're not sure what the problem is. Ask. Often there's sin on both sides. And if there is, apologize. If you're the one who's the sinner, apologize. If you're the one who's been sinned against, listen well. If, you're gonna, if you need to apologize, let, understand this. There are four things in a biblical apology. Four steps. They're all important. Number one, these are the three best words in the English language. Are you ready? I was wrong. Put a period there. Okay, not a comma followed by a contrasting conjunction, <laughs> right? Those of you grammarians got that, right? Where you say, comma, but, and then you start excuse-making, right? Don't do that. However, you know, although, <laughs> right, don't do that. Put a period there. I was wrong. Admit what you did and call it what God calls it. Call it sin. Admit. Confess, agree with God that what you did was wrong. And tell them. And then, step two, I am sorry. Express regret for what you've done. Admit your sin and then express regret for having sinned. And number three, ask for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And number four, and this is hard. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where you have to change. What can I do to make this right? If it's appropriate, make restitution in a tangible way. If it's not uh, that kind of a thing, then commit yourself going forward to change the behavior. Because if you're genuinely sorry, 
if you are genuinely convinced that what you did was wrong, you don't go and repeat it. Amen? Now, there's also lots of room for grace here in granting forgiveness, right? Because we're all sinners and we're all kind of in process and we our transformation is not immediate. And so we may need to forgive more than once the same offense. And that brings me to point number four in this application section. And that's this. If you're sinned against, remember Matthew 18. This is a beautiful passage. Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Now, now what Peter did there, you may not know this, he doubled and added one to the number that the rabbis said you had to forgive. They said three. He's like, I'll go for seven because that'll be really spiritual. Jesus says, no, Peter, not seven times, 70 times. Seven. In other words, so many that you lost count. And then he tells a story, as Jesus often did, illustrate the principle. And he says, you know, there was a master whose servant owed him, and he gives a number, he says 10,000 talents. Now, you don't need to translate ancient money to today, but basically what he said was it was a huge amount, an unpayable amount no matter how long you work. It would be like uh, me telling the story and saying, now a certain uh, man owed his master a gajillion dollars. How much is that? It's a lot. A lot. More than he could pay in a million lifetimes. And he, his master was going to throw him in debtor's prison until he would pay it all off. And he pleaded with his master, please forgive me. And his master did. Amazing. But the same servant went out from that meeting with his master and found his fellow servant who owed him like 300 bucks and began to choke him by the throat and say, pay me what you owe me. And his fellow servant saw what happened. They said, didn't you forgive this servant like a gajillion dollars? And the master said, well, yes, I did. Are you aware he's shaken down one of us for 300 bucks? And he said, bring that guy to me. And he asked him the question, didn't I forgive you an enormous unpayable debt? Yes. So what's the deal? He commands his other servants to throw that one, the unforgiving servant, into prison until he should pay the last penny. And then Jesus says this, So your heavenly Father will treat you if you do not forgive one another from the heart. Forgiveness is important to Jesus. Amen? think that we can say that safely. Reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel. And if we are unreconciled as people in our homes, in our marriages, in our communities, in our cities, in our nation, then we of all people ought to be about the business of causing that to happen. Amen.
And it ought to start where we live with the people in our own house. The people in our own church, people in our own neighborhood, etc. So I'm going to pray because this is going to have to be a mighty work of God to bring this about. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, our lives are broken. Our lives are broken beyond repair until Jesus comes into them. And Jesus comes and makes peace between us and you and then brings transformation by the Holy Spirit that can only be described as miraculous. Father, we pray that you would continue your miraculous work in us and among us here in this place that we would first of all be reconciled to you and then secondly be reconciled one to another that we would be at peace and having established peace among the people of God, that we would shine like lights in a dark world desperately in need of peace. Father, our world doesn't often care about what we think about anything, but they watch us for what they see us do. Father, I pray that what they see us do would be so amazing, so reflective of Acts chapter 2, kind of living, that they could not stay away, but that they would be drawn to you and to worshiping you through the testimony of your people and through the way that they live it out. Father, work in our hearts, work in our homes, work in our, our streets, our cities, our community, our nation to bring about reconciliation between God and people and between people and each other that people of every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people might join, as the Scripture says, will one day happen in worshiping Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.